One of the things we're uh, on about as a church, and you can see it every week we print it on the front of our uh, weekly snack, is growing disciples. That's what we're on about. We're on about seeing people grow as disciples of Jesus. Uh, If we are disciples of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a Christian, then you want to grow. That's not a, a question, if you like. It's just a given. If you're a disciple, you want to grow to be more like the one you're following. You want to grow as a Christian. So we have to ask, how do you do that? How do we grow as disciples? How do we grow in godliness? How do you grow in faithfulness? When people uh, try and summarize the Bible's teaching on it, they often say there are three ways, three things we call the means of grace, three things God uses to grow us to be more like our Lord. And I've put them there on your outline. The first is, of course, God's word. Uh, That's how we grow. That's why we read the Bible every time we meet together. That's why we get together in our gospel teams or at youth group or whatever it is during the week to read the Bible. That's why we read the Bible for ourselves. As we come to know God's word better, we grow as Christians. That's the first way. The second thing we know is through prayer. That's the second thing God uses to help us grow as Christians. Look on your outline. I've printed what I think is one of the great verses of the Bible that people don't know as well as they should. James chapter 1 verse 5 It says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing and it will be given to him. Just see how amazing that promise is. Uh, There are very, very few things in the Bible where it says specifically to you, if you do this, God will do this for you. But here it says, if you lack wisdom, if you want to grow in wisdom, in your knowledge of God, and therefore in godliness and faithfulness and all those other things. If you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus and you pray and ask God, he will make you grow. He will give you wisdom. It's a promise there. So we need to be praying. We need to be asking God to be at work in us, to grow us, to be more like Jesus. And we know that the third one is by fellowship. That's why we're here tonight. Uh, That's why we prioritize meeting together with brothers and sisters in Christ. The third thing God uses to grow us to be more like Jesus, is each other. As we encourage one another, as as we are encouraged by other people, we grow in godliness, we grow in faithfulness. So word, prayer and fellowship. Being a Christian really isn't rocket science. It's very, very simple. Word, prayer and fellowship. They are the things God uses to keep you trusting in Jesus and to grow you as a disciple of Jesus. But there is a fourth thing that the Bible says that God uses to help us grow and it's nowhere near as popular as the other three. So you see on your outline I've put three question marks there. So do you know what that fourth thing is that the Bible says this is how God will grow you as a Christian? It's suffering. You can see why they don't put that on the advertising brochures. We don't put that on our church sign. We're on about the word, prayer, fellowship and suffering. Come and join us. But for honesty and advertising sake maybe we should, I don't know. But you see, this is one of the interesting things of the Bible. And it's a funny reality that actually works itself out in real life, as all truths of the Bible do. But the thing is, the better things are going for us, sadly, all too often, the better things go for you, you'd think that would lead you to thank God more and to praise God more. But all too often, the more, the better things go, the more in our sinfulness, we forget God. Because we think, well, why do I need God? I'm pretty good. I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Why do I need what God has to offer? We presume on God. And that is why we 
And by here I mean we here gathered here, this particular group of Christians who happen to live in a very affluent time and place, we comfortable middle class Christians are in a very, very dangerous place. Because it's very, very hard to see why we need God when we have everything at the drop of a hat. See, nothing blunts the the blade of faith better than easy, comfortable affluence. There is nothing so damaging for Christian faith than easy, comfortable affluence, which is the world we live in. Whereas the reality is that it is often when we face struggles, it's often when we face trials and difficulties that we learn to trust God more. And that isn't just a truth of the scriptures, that's a truth in reality, in life as well. It gets lived out every day. It is suffering that refines us. It's struggles that that shape us to be more like Jesus. Nothing grows faithfulness in us so much as when you have nothing else to trust in. And nothing grows hope for heaven more in a person than when they realise this world is not the answer. This world is not dealing with my issues. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us, look on your outline in Romans chapter 5, this is what he says. He says, we should rejoice in our sufferings and afflictions. Listen very carefully there. It's not rejoice despite them. He's not saying, be happy even while you're suffering. That's how a lot of people seem to read those verses. He's not saying that. That's hard enough. But he's actually saying, rejoice in the fact that you get to suffer which sounds incredibly weird. Look at Romans 5, verse 3 on your outline. It says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. To a non-Christian, that just sounds insane. To someone who doesn't follow Jesus, that just sounds insane. But Christians, we get this, don't we? We understand it because we know this world is not my home. This world, with all its good and all its bad, is not my home. We know I am looking forward to something more. And we know that suffering in this life actually creates a greater keenness in us for what we're looking forward to in the new creation. That's why Christians joke, be careful before you pray that prayer in James chapter 1 that we read before. I said before, just pray and God will make you more godly. Just pray and God will give you wisdom. But be careful what you pray for. Because the means God uses to make you more godly, to grow you in wisdom, might be suffering. Not always. I'm not trying to discourage you from praying at that point. But you get my point. Because God uses our experiences. He uses our experiences positive but especially negative in this life to refine us and shape us and sharpen us to be the effective tools that he wants us to be. And so turning to Genesis 40, open up Genesis 40, you'll need to follow along with me. Joseph, as much as any other person in history, is this sort of worked out in practice. He is like a real life example of how this works. Because do you remember, for those who were with us over the last few weeks, do you remember when we first met him back in chapter 35 and 36? Do you remember? He was a 17-year-old, annoying younger brother. And I can say that because I am, if not 17, an annoying younger brother. But that's what he was. He was dobbing in his older brothers. He was unwise in choosing to speak when he should have stayed silent. Uh, And by the end of that story, you're sort of thinking, oh, I know he's the godly one, but he is a bit annoying in that first chapter where we met Joseph. But then by the end of the story, 
by the end of the book of Genesis, he is the man who towers spiritually above just about any other person in the whole Bible, except our Lord Jesus, who he points us forward to. See, see, but it wasn't like God magically zapped 17-year-old Joseph and turned him from being the annoying younger brother into the super godly saviour of God's people. It didn't happen like that. And it doesn't happen like that. God didn't just instantly transform him into this man of wisdom who would do these incredible things to bring about God's promises. It was Joseph's experiences and especially his suffering that that is what God used to shape him. That's what God used to mould him into the wonderful godly saviour that he become, became. So we've been watching Joseph on this roller coaster journey through the whole story. He started, do you remember where he started? He started up the top. He started as the favourite son in the promised land of Canaan with the special Technicolor dream coat. So that was where he started, right at the top. And then very quickly, his brothers got jealous of him, sold him to be a slave, right down the bottom, dragged across the desert to Egypt. But then you think, hang on, things are going to go up again for Joseph. And he became in this position of prominence in Potiphar's house. He's back up the top. If not the top, he's on the way up at least. But then he's falsely accused. And so he's thrown into prison. And that's where we meet him again here at chapter 40. So where he is, is at his lowest ebb so far. And to get a picture of the extent of his sufferings, if you read through the whole story and work out how old he was at each point, what you work out is, there's that person that drives past this time every night, every Sunday night, it's all right, let him go. But what you work out is, is at this point, he has been either a slave or in prison for 11 years. So remember, he's 28 years old, at this point, and he has been either a slave or in prison for 11 of those 28 years. So it's not like Joseph had a rosy life with a temporary hiccup. That is, the majority, that is all of his adult life has been suffering. So that's who we're meeting. That's who we're looking at. So let's get into chapter 40. Here he is. He's in prison when two new prisoners arrive, two very important men, Pharaoh's cupbearer, and Pharaoh's baker. Clearly, they have offended Pharaoh in some way. Now, we don't quite understand how important these positions were, but in the ancient world, what is the best way to kill a king? Poison him. So you had to have two very trustworthy men as your chief baker and your chief cupbearer. So they were very, very important men, and somehow they've upset Pharaoh. I just wonder if he got an upset tummy one day and thought, oh, well, you two, you're gone, you know, that's it. You made me sick. I don't know what it was. Maybe they were accused of treason, but they were important men. And Joseph, as a slave in prison, was, was appointed to look after them. He was appointed to, to uh, care for these two more important men. But then we're told that each of these men had a dream one night and their dreams really unsettled them. So much so that the next morning, Joseph could see that they were upset. The problem for them was, and you can see it there in verse 8, the problem was they'd had these dreams, but they had no one to interpret the dreams for them. Now, we have to understand this. When I have a dream, it has no meaning whatsoever. It's just that I ate too much cheese before I went to bed the night before or something like that, which happens all too often, sadly. In Egyptian culture, dreams were a connection, they believed, to the afterlife. 
So, so when you had a dream, it was either some ancestor of yours, some, some person who is now dead giving you a message from the afterlife, or it was one of the gods speaking to you. And so there were these professional religious men whose job it was to interpret your dreams. So if you had a dream, you went to one of the special holy men and they pulled out their special secret books that had all the answers and they would look up what each symbol meant and they would tell you what your dream meant. Uh, you know, in Indiana Jones movies and all that sort of stuff, well, well they, he didn't make that up. Well, Steven Spielberg didn't make that up, whoever made those movies. When they do this sort of stuff, it's because that's what the pagan world was like. That's the world they lived in. Now come with me to verse 8, because that's where Joseph steps in. We had dreams, they said to him, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Now that is a really, really important sentence there, and we, we could just brush over it, because when in our society, when you talk about God, people assume you're talking about the Christian God. Even today, even though there are Muslims in our country and Buddhists and all that sort of thing, generally, when people talk about God, they think, yeah, yeah, there's one God and Jesus is his son. That, that is, there's still a remnant of that in Australian culture. But here what you actually get is a really great insight into the developing character of Joseph. Because that wasn't the world he was in. He was in a world where he was probably the only person in Egypt who worshipped the one true God. Everyone else worshipped other gods, hundreds of them. So how tempting would it be for him to say, I can interpret your dreams, but leave God out of it? How tempting would it have been for him to say, I am a wise religious man, but he doesn't. He says, God can interpret your dreams. I'm just a vessel. I'm just the one God happens to use. All the credit goes to God. Like the Apostle Paul says, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. But, but more than that, as I say, this is an incredibly brave thing to say. This is a place where Ra and Horus and Osiris and all those other crazy gods you see in the pyramids and all that sort of thing, that was who they worshipped. They were the true gods for these people. And so Joseph is saying to them, don't worry about your false gods your idols, your priests with their holy books. God, the Hebrew God, the one true God, he is the one who can tell you what you need to know. How tempting would it have been to leave God out of his offer or to tone it down and say maybe my God can tell you what you need to know. But not Joseph, just God, not one of many, the God, he alone can help you. I find this a challenge for me to be bold, to not self-censor the way I speak about God in just life in general. Do you find sometimes that you speak differently in your gospel team on a Wednesday night or amongst Christians here at church than you do in your workplace or than you do in your school or in your uni or wherever it is you spend your life or in your family if they're not Christian? So when something good happens, we say that was lucky. We don't believe that. We should give the credit to God. We should say, God has blessed me. God is good. We don't believe in luck. We're Christians. When, when a person shares a burden with you or a struggle, we don't just sympathize. That's what anyone does. We say, can I pray for you? Because the God I believe in answers prayer. You see, 
Let's be bold and give the credit where it's due. Let's talk about our God and let's use his name, the name of Jesus. That's who we want people to give the glory to. Once again, I think Joseph is the man of faithfulness. That's what he is. So anyway, in the story, the cupbearer thinks, well, this is worth a punt. I haven't got anyone else. So he shares his dream. It's there in verse 9. Look with me. In the dream, there's this vine with three branches and grapes grew on the vine and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and then I gave the cup to Pharaoh. And so Joseph tells him, he says, this is easy. This is what it means. He says, this is God telling you that in three days you'll be brought out of prison. You'll be restored to your former position in Pharaoh's court. What a great message. And the cupbearer is overjoyed. If this is how you interpret dreams, I want more of it, is the way he's thinking. He thinks this is great. But before the cupbearer gets too excited, Joseph makes a request. He says, but please, when you get out, please mention me to Pharaoh. Please let Pharaoh know that I am here in prison even though I don't deserve it. Please get Pharaoh, if you can, if you can influence him in any way, get him to release me from prison. And I just want to pause there and just point out, in all this talk about perseverance in suffering, in all this talk about persevering and rejoicing in suffering, that doesn't just equal fatalistic acceptance. That's not the Christian view of suffering. For all Joseph's faithfulness despite his suffering, he didn't want to stay there. He wanted to get out. He wasn't like, well, this is my lot in life and so I'll just grit my teeth and face it. It's the same for us when we face suffering or trials. It's not like we should long to continue, long for it to continue like we're masochists. The godly prayer when we face suffering is twofold, but all too often we only pray one of them. The godly prayer when we face suffering is to say, God, please use this to refine me. God, please use this to shape me. Please use this to teach me, to grow me in faith, to grow me in hope. That's right, but it's not wrong to also pray, God, please relieve my suffering. God, if it be your will, please remove this burden from me. That is a godly prayer as well. The godly Christian prays both. And ultimately on a bigger scale, that is just our prayer for all of life. That's your prayer as a Christian. We don't want to keep living in this world. For us, we long for Jesus to return. So we pray two things. We say, God, please continue to shape me and use me and help me to be a godly witness here in this world now. But Jesus, please return quickly so that you can relieve all the suffering of this broken world, even if it's not me facing the suffering. Please return and make everything right. But now back to Joseph and his dreams Because the baker was listening in and he thought, well, that interpretation sounded pretty good. I might try mine. So he says, here's my dream. I saw three baskets of white bread sitting on my head. And there were these lovely breads and pastries made for Pharaoh. But then these birds came and they were eating it all, eating all the bread and all the pastries. What does that mean? And I just imagine him. I like... uh, Uh, Steve Bodnaroy has a joke with me that I watch too many movies, but I like running it as a movie in my mind and I'm just visualising the baker's face at this point. And he's he's got this happy, expectant face. You give good dream interpretations. Tell me. But sadly, it wasn't quite so positive. Look at verse 18. This is its interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. 
It's not the most encouraging little passage for our baptism. Sorry, Sasha, but uh, I'll pick a more positive one next time. But it's horrible, isn't it? It's a horrible message. As God revealed that to Joseph, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. As God revealed that to Joseph, how tempting would have been to hold that message back? How tempting would have been to change it? Or to say, actually, for some reason, God hasn't made this one as clear to me as the cupbearer. I mean, what difference would it make? The guy was going to be dead in three days. He's not going to ask for his money back, you, you know. But here is the thing. Being faithful means being truthful. And being truthful means you share the whole truth. And this is very, very relevant to us as Christians. Because at that point of history, Joseph was the means or the vessel of God's communication, of God's revelation to the world. At this point of of history, we are Christians. We are called to share God's revelation, the gospel, with our world, with anyone who will hear it. And we proclaim Jesus. And we tell people, you can find salvation in Jesus. That is our message. If you were new with us here tonight, that is our message. We want you to be saved. We want you to trust in Jesus, to believe in him and so be saved, just like we celebrated with Sasha before. As Christians, that's what we're called to do. But if we do that faithfully, if we share that message faithfully, we need to share the positive and the negative. We need to share both. You see, the message, if I just tell you, Jesus Christ died to save you, that means nothing if I don't tell you what you need saving from. See, the full gospel says to you, you face God's judgment, just as I do, if you do not repent and believe in Jesus. That is the Christian message. The cross of Christ, the gospel, is meaningless if you don't also share with people the consequences of not turning and trusting in Jesus. We need saving from God's judgment. Sadly, there are too many Christians today, I think, who are happy to talk about God is love. I love saying God is love, but it's meaningless. It says nothing to people because they lack the courage to actually help people grasp that love. You see, because you need to understand the reality of our sin and the reality of God's coming judgment before you grasp how loving it is for God to have sent his son to pay the price for us. I remember many, many years ago now, when I was at uni, I'd only been a Christian for about two months. uh, And I was sitting around over lunch with about five friends just around the table at uni. And there was one other Christian with me. Uh, And we just had one of those conversations that just happened once in a while where people were actually really honest and people were asking their questions. And I just got this opportunity as a young Christian, I've been a Christian a couple of months, to share the wonderful news of the gospel with these four non-Christian friends, with this other Christian friend there as well. And then one girl said, so you're saying to me that we are all sinners who are facing God's judgment if we don't believe in Jesus. And I said, yes, that's exactly right. I said, that's, but it's not just that you're a sinner, I'm a sinner too. I tried to explain. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm just saying that every human being 
needs the salvation that Jesus has to offer. And she thought about it for a while and then she said, so you're saying I'm going to hell if I don't turn and believe in Jesus. And you know when one person in a conversation says something and then everyone else just goes quiet and everyone else's head just went, yeah, Phil, what do you think about that? That was the question. She said, and I... And going through my mind, I'm thinking, she's got it. She's got the gospel. But do I have the courage to tell her, yes, that's right. Yes, that is right. She'd got the gospel. But the question was, did I love her enough to put the friendship on the line to tell her the truth? Sadly the other Christian at the table got really uncomfortable and they said, no, 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 Phil's not saying that. And they changed the topic. And to this day, I'm just trying to do the maths in my head, 20 years later, to this day I regret my cowardice in not having the courage to change the topic back and say, actually, that is what I'm saying. That's what God is saying. And so do you want to repent and believe the good news? We've been uh, studying Honest Evangelism, a book in our gospel teams during the week, our small groups where we meet together. Who's been reading Honest Evangelism? Most people here. Uh, in it, the guy who writes it, Rico Tice, he uh, comes up with this quote from uh, this comedian called Penn Gillette. He's part of sort of the magical comedy duo, uh, uh, Penn and Teller. And uh, he tells the story. This guy's an atheist, Penn Gillette. He's an atheist, he's not a Christian. Uh, But one day at a, what do you call a comedy thing? A concert? Do you call that? A show? Whatever it is. This person came up to him and said, I'm a Christian and gave him a Bible. And he he said, and I've highlighted some verses for you to read. And these other people, the comedian's atheist friends, were making fun of him and saying, why can't those Christians just keep it themselves? You know, if they've got to be religious, why do they have to bother me with it? But he, he's an atheist, he said, no, 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 no. He said, I have no respect for Christians who stay quiet. This is the full quote. I think I put it on your outline, but it's also up on the screen if we can bring it up, Alex. He said, I don't respect that at all, talking about Christians who keep it to themselves. He said, if you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelise? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible but not tell them about it? It's true, isn't it? makes us uncomfortable because he uses the word hate. We'd rather switch it the other way and say, how little do you love somebody? But it's true, isn't it? Sometimes the person who disagrees with you states the truth the most clearly. And that is stating the truth. See, Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season. I think he means when people want to hear it and when people don't want to hear it. And Joseph, at this point, was the vessel of God's revelation, just like we are to our modern world. And so he told the truth. He told the positive and he told the negative. We can put that away now, Alex. For us, though, it's much better, isn't it? Because we don't ever tell anyone just the negative. 
Joseph told this guy just the negative. We get to tell people there is a negative, but what a wonderful positive. If you will just investigate Christ, if you'll just consider Jesus, if you'll just think about him and weigh it up, and if you'll just turn and put your trust in him, then you can know the wonderful truth of salvation and eternal life. We have it much, much better than Joseph did. And lo and behold, if you go back to chapter 40, three days later, it all happened. Just as Joseph said it would, the baker was taken off and killed and the cupbearer was restored. And so here is Joseph ready for the cupbearer to put in a kind word to Pharaoh. And I have this image of him sort of doing his hair and, and getting all his gear together, sort of like people on Survivor before they go to the, the, uh, get voted out, except they want it. You, you know, he wants it. And he sort of thinks, I'm going to get voted out of prison. And I imagine him on the first day and no one came. And he comes back the second day and no one came. And he goes back a week later and no one came. And it's all because, look at the last verse, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. See, Joseph would actually be in prison for a full two more years till he was 30 before the cupbearer finally remembered and did something about it. Which brings us back to where we started, which is with Joseph being faithful but still waiting for God's deliverance. And this is the message of the Joseph story. Faithfulness is rewarded. God rewards the faithfulness of his people, but not always straight away. And sadly for some, not always in this life. But the faithfulness of the Christian is always rewarded eternally. See, what we learn from Joseph is that a key part of Christian faithfulness is patient endurance. If you're after the easy life now, don't follow Jesus. Jesus actually tries to talk people out of following him who think it's going to be all great and all that sort of thing. He says, no, no, no. If you're after the easy life now, don't follow me. But if you're after the fulfilled life now and eternal life and salvation forever, follow Jesus. See, this is so countercultural in our modern world where everything is about instant gratification. I want it and I want it now. That's the way we work. It's the way the modern world works. We want everything and we deserve it now. But God says, no, 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 you might have to wait. You might have to wait. The Christian life is full of great joy. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have the joy of the love of brothers and sisters in Christ. But it also involves patient endurance through all sorts of suffering and all sorts of trials and all sorts of struggles. But what Joseph also reminds us is that those trials and those struggles are not meaningless it's not like Buddhism, where it's all just meaningless in the end. That's not Christianity. The struggles, the trials are meaningful. See, next week we'll see Joseph rise to incredible heights. We'll see the way God uses him to save his people once and for all. And the 17-year-old Joseph we met a few weeks ago in his Technicolor dream coat, he couldn't have done that. But the Joseph who had learnt wisdom and who had learnt patience and endurance and faithfulness all through his sufferings, that Joseph, God did incredible things through. And of course, isn't that the experience of Jesus too? Who suffered everything for us, who patiently endured, but then was raised up and glorified. 
And what's true for Joseph and what's true for Jesus is true for us. God uses the trials and the struggles and the sufferings and the setbacks of this life to shape you and me to be more godly and to be more effective servants of Jesus. Our last Bible verse tonight is at the bottom of your outline there. It's from James chapter 1, verses 2 and two to 4. And he says this, he says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But verse 4 is the key. He says, but endurance must do its complete work. He means it's not going to be relieved straight away. It might go on for a long time. Endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Brothers and sisters, we will face all sorts of trials and sufferings in this life. That is a given. And I am very, very conscious, because I know very many of you very well, I am very, very conscious there are some here who have faced or will face worse suffering than I have ever faced. I'm not qualified to preach this sermon. I've had a blessed life in many ways. And many of you have suffered far worse than I ever have. But the reality is all of us, we will face trials. So we need to get this right before we suffer. So I want to ask you, do you believe that God is in control even when things go wrong? Do you believe it? Because if you don't believe it now, when the trials do come, your faith will be like a mist that just dissolves. Get it right now. Do you believe that God is working for your eternal good even when it doesn't look like it at all? Because you need to believe it now so that when the bad things do happen, your faith doesn't just dissolve. And do you believe that God is using those trials to refine you and shape you to be more godly, to strengthen your faith and to be a sharper sword for the gospel? See, we all know these truths. We studied Romans last year. We've studied James before. We know these truths. But the story of Joseph shows us graphically with a real-life human being who lived in real-life history with real-life struggles, it shows us what faithful, patient endurance looks like in real life. That is why Joseph is our example. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, sometimes when we face sufferings and trials and setbacks, we are tempted to doubt your goodness. So we pray that when we do, we will remember the story of Joseph and remember that you are working for our eternal good in all things, even when things seem to be going wrong. But more than that, we will remember that you are using our sufferings and our trials and our setbacks to shape us and refine us, to grow us in faith, to grow us in hope and to grow us in godliness. So, Father, we pray for each person here that you might use that to grow us so that we will be faithful followers of you, just like Joseph all those years ago. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.